still think you can escape. Number six. That's why I'm going to do better than that. Oh. Going to escape and come back. Come back. Well, only escape, come back, wipe this place off the face of the earth, obliterate it, and you with it. Ah. Oh. Subsection six, paragraph four. Add. On the other hand, persecution complex amounting to mania. Paranoid delusions of grandeur. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, a man whose fondest hope is just to see the whole world become the village. Is that so much to ask? My co-host is Guy, an Estonian with a questionable accent and an even more questionable wig. Hello, Guy. Hello, Iran. You studied up on your Russian lately. Yeah, Russian fingers and Roman hands. <laughs> So when it comes to Doctor Who, I no longer have any idea what you should watch when, but when it comes to The Prisoner, I know exactly how you should watch it, and that means I know that the fourth story must be The Chimes of Big Ben. Mm. And especially watching the series this time around, where we're diving in deeply and I'm taking notes and thinking about it more, I've come to consider this story to be kind of a foundational and critical story of the series, and some of the reasons for that will become apparent as we go through the series, but I think it's easy to say right up front that it kind of has all the elements that someone thinks of when they think of a prisoner episode. Hmm. With that, on to the chimes of Big Ben. He can make even the act of putting on his dressing gown appear as a gesture of defiance. There are methods we haven't used yet, of course. I want him with a whole heart, body, and soul. So we have our new number two. Uh, Guy, did you recognize this number two? I didn't recognize him, but I enjoyed him. I thought he was an interesting combination of cheerful and sinister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Leo McKern, who I think is an amazing actor. This is where I was introduced to him. He's best known in the UK for a legal series called Rumpole of the Bailey, where he's a lawyer or barrister, I believe in that terminology. Mm. Interestingly, even though here he's not a young guy, he didn't start playing Rumpole until 10 years after this. So his defining role mm. came quite late in his career. We'll talk more about that later. Let's see how he does at cracking number six. <laughs> so we start out at number six's apartment and we wake up to what the radio is telling us is another fine morning in the village. Very realistic, annoying broadcast voice we've heard before is telling us this nice weather is going to continue for a whole nother month. Yeah. Now, I don't know Wales, but I mean, being out in that region, I'm going to guess they don't really have a month long nice weather. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, no. And we're also told that our local council, your local council elected by you, <laughs> has decided to have a crafting competition in six weeks. Yeah, we see number two with his minion, who's actually a guy we saw in the first episode. And the minion is suggesting that they could use certain methods to crack number six. The number two says, no, I want him with a whole heart, body, and soul. It says he doesn't want him broken into fragments. And it's just clear from how he acts right from the beginning, the first seconds. He's really into this. He's really energetic. You can tell this is going to be enjoyable. Mm -hmm. 
And they're watching number six and number six is fixing breakfast and he gets annoyed at the jaunty morning radio music. And so he puts the radio in the fridge, <laughs> which amuses number two greatly. <laughs> yeah. It's a good place for it. It's got a good insulation. <laughs> I notice if you look in the fridge, when he puts it in there, he's got like a whole roast chicken and a big salami and all this. And again, I'm like, wow, if you're going to be a prisoner, this is a pretty good place to be a prisoner. <laughs> yeah. That may as well eat well. Yeah. Then we're in the control room and number two calls and asks when an incoming helicopter will be here and says he wants to meet it when it arrives. And we're in that old person's area, the tables where people hang out while they're dying <laughs> in the village. And number six is playing chess with a person we saw in the first episode. Now, I'm pretty sure they referred to him as the Admiral there. He had said that he had yeah. sailed the stone boat. But in this episode, they referred to him as the General. Now, that can be a little confusing because we had the episode called The General. Right. So, I prefer to call him the Admiral. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, see, I wasn't sure. I, I didn't. I didn't memorize the Admiral's face from that episode, so I wasn't even sure if this was the same actor. I think it is, but I might be wrong. If not, he looks very similar. Yeah, could be. They're both old guys anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and the Admiral is thinking of making a chess set for the crafts competition. He used to be good at woodworking. Wants to know if number six is entering. And when number six says no, the Admiral, you know, Pretty directly when they said, you're a fool, number six. That's my opinion. <laughs> and he gives him general advice that he should start cooperating with the village and get along. And number six isn't having any of that, but he does try to get some information out of him while he's talking. Like, what uh, military unit was he part of? What part of the world was it from? But the Admiral's not giving anything up. Yeah. Meanwhile, the helicopter arrives in the background and an ambulance drives up to it and an unconscious woman is unloaded from it. Number two shows up and tells number six she's here to recuperate from nervous tension. Hmm. I guess, you know, the doctors tell you to go out into the countryside. <laughs> One function the village could serve. Yeah, visit a nice little village on the coast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now number two and number six are in number two's office continuing their conversation and they sort of have an obligatory butting of heads as number six gets to know the new number two. <laughs> One of the little funny butting of heads in here is number two asks number six, how many cubes of sugar he takes for his coffee or tea, I guess it would be. Mm. And number six tells him to look in their book and the book says he takes none. And then later on in this scene, <laughs> He very conspicuously takes three cubes of sugar and puts them in his tea <laughs> just to screw with number two. Oh, yeah. Number two asks number six if he still thinks he can escape. An interesting little thing here. Number six is very intense. He says, I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to escape, come back, and wipe this place off the face of the earth, obliterate it, and you with it. <laughs> <laughs> so is this foreshadowing for where the series is going to go? Yeah, well, I hope so. That would be a good way to end it, is just with him wiping the village off the face of the earth. We shall see. Number six is now shown the woman who arrived in the helicopter on the screen. Number two tells her she's the new number eight. She's his neighbor. They watch her waking up in her bed, confused, and she's going through the exact same process number six did the very first time he woke up in the village. So it's an exact replica of her room. And number two says to number six, do you remember your first day? Mm -hmm. And so she goes to her room, then she goes to the window, and she's shocked to see that she's in the village. 
And number two calls her and invites her to lunch at the Green Dome. So pretty much exactly the same thing that number six went through. All right. Except it was breakfast in his case. Yeah. After a half-hearted attempt to ask number six why he resigned, number two encourages him to join the craft competition. After all, his file says at age 15, he was the top of his class in woodwork. Yeah. And he really likes this file. I don't get into all the details in my notes, but in pretty much every scene, he takes out a little recorder and records a new little entry to put into number six's files. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a Captain Kirk and his uh, Captain's Log entries. <laughs> yep. And outside, number six is returning to his place, and we're hearing more radio announcements about the craft competition. And number six encounters number eight, who says she doesn't know where she is and how does she get to the green dome and it's kind of odd here because obviously he's not taking any chances he doesn't know who this person is if he can trust her and oddly he takes on the persona of someone in the village and so he's you know when she says where am i he says in the village (laughs) of course it's the same thing he was told oh yeah yeah he's no more helpful than the average village citizen (laughs) I got the impression in this that he had a strong suspicion he was being played from the start. Yeah. He decides to be as enigmatic as anyone else in the village just to screw with her. (laughs) So he does escort her to the dome and he is engaging with her and without telling her anything, he leaves her and then we cut to the evening and she's returning to her apartment and he calls out to her. And points out it seems to have been a rather long lunch, because <laughs> this mm. must be like, you know, seven, eight in the evening. Yeah. And he proposes a nightcap, and she doesn't know what he means by that. So clearly she's some kind of foreigner. Yeah. But she comes with him into his apartment. And <laughs> this is amusing, because he offers her drinks, and he sarcastically lists all the non-alcoholic beverages here available. There's one good thing about this place. At least it's cheap, genuine, non-alcoholic Whiskey, 24 work units. Or would you prefer genuine non-alcoholic vodka? 16 work units. I hope there's nothing significant in that. I think it really bugs him that there's no alcohol here. Yeah, well, understandably so. And it's interesting. This is another thing that they foresaw. If you look at, I know on Amazon.com, they have all these non-alcoholic this, that, and the other thing. And it's supposed to be you know, gin, tequila, whatever. So I, I can't even imagine. I, I've been tempted to order some just to see what it's like, but they're they're like 30 bucks a bottle, and it's wow. not even booze. So <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and I'm going to guess the taste probably isn't there, but who knows. Yeah. And they have an amusing little exchange here. He asks her, are you Russian? She says, Estonian. And he says, well, Russian. <laughs> and she says, we don't think so. And this reminded me, I've only mentioned a gazillion times to you that I, about 30 some years ago, went to Prague a few years after the Velvet Revolution. It was a really interesting experience. There was this interesting thing there. So Prague had been a key vacation destination for Russians, especially people who are high up in the system. Hmm. So everybody in Prague spoke Russian because they had been occupied by the Russians for a long time. Hmm. When I was there... If someone Russian went up to a Czech person and tried to speak Russian to them, they would always say, oh, I'm sorry, I've forgotten. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. My last job, there was a security guard who was 
uh, older guy, and he was from Hungary, and I guess they really, really disliked the Russians too. <laughs> he was uh, he was old enough to remember the Nazis, and he didn't like them a lot either. But but compared to the Russians, he seemed to prefer the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is funny because in Prague, one of the things the Russians did for them is they gave them a gift to these bridges. And these bridges just happened to be wide enough that you could have two rows of tanks go down them. <laughs> so, yeah. Number eight accuses number six of being number two's assistant and trying to get information out of her because he actually asked her why she resigned. Mm-hmm. And of course, he implies that she's the one helping number two. So they're kind of going after him here. And she gets upset at being called a number and says, no, my name is Nadia. And then she turns around and leaves in a huff. And I think this is obviously the beginning of him having to struggle with, is she for real or not? Yeah. Yeah. Cause she's, she's, uh, in some ways just, uh, an echo of what he was. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now we're the next day at the beach. So again, if you're going to be a prisoner having a nice beach and there's all sorts of people on the beach. I did notice they did try to make it fit in a little better. You still have, especially some of the women running around in bathing suits that don't really fit the village aesthetic. Uh, We saw that in the first episode. And I think after this, I don't think you ever see it again, but I didn't remember this one. So we will see if it comes up again, (laughs) but I did notice this time that some of the women with the bikinis, they still had their, their number badge on. So at least they made made them look a little more like they belonged in the village. <laughs> number eight brings a towel and sits on the beach and number two and number six are on a rock overhang overlooking her sitting at a table having a conversation and number six uh, tells number two look you're a prisoner just as much as me and number two is not phased by this at all he says oh yes i know too much i'm never getting out <laughs> and really interesting conversation here and uh, uh, number two says I am definitely an optimist. That's why it doesn't matter who number one is. It doesn't matter which side runs the village. It's run by one side or the other. Oh, certainly. But both sides are becoming identical. What, in fact, has been created? An international community. A perfect blueprint for world order. When the sides facing each other suddenly realize that they're looking into a mirror, they will see that this is the pattern for the future. The whole earth. As the village. That is my hope. And while they're talking, number eight decides to take a swim, or rather a stunt double with hair that's not even close to hers <laughs> takes a swim. Oh, I, d- I didn't catch that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of weird wig stuff in here, and we'll come back to it in a bit. Even the actress playing Nadia, at times she has this really kind of boofy, if <laughs> that's the right word, wig, and other times it seems to be her hair. It's always red. But the wig mm. is sometimes there and sometimes not. I don't know what that's all about. Hmm. Number two leaves and number six realizes that Nadia, number eight, is still swimming. She seems to be going very far out. In his office, number two is looking in number eight's files and sees that she's an Olympic swimmer. And he suddenly has a realization that he last saw her swimming. <laughs> <laughs> he calls the control room and asks them to track her. And it turns out she's close to the two-mile visual limit. So she's been swimming for a while. And number two calls an orange alert, which means that Rover comes up out of the water. So we see them actually going through the water and popping up to the surface. Mm. And she is dragged back to the shore 
by not just Rover, but by two little balloons <laughs> next to her. And it, it's, I'm going to say not probably the image they wanted to have two little balloons next to this larger balloon. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, well, if you hadn't mentioned it, I was going to. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. But regardless, number six goes over to her on the beach and she is totally out of it. In fact, the actress did a great job here because her eyes are open. And her eyes are not moving at all. And that's really, really hard to do. Usually Mm. in those situations, you'll see their eyes move. So she is totally catatonic. And I think this is a point where number six starts to think, hmm, you know, maybe this is for real. Seems like she either was trying to commit suicide or trying to actually escape. Although how she Mm -hmm. could have escaped by swimming miles and miles, who knows. And next thing, number two is calling number six and asking him to join him in the hospital. And it's a little unclear when this is. I I thought originally that it was right afterwards, but I think it has to be the next day, the way Mm. things go. So timeline is a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, could be. We're in the hospital and number two wants number six to help him, especially since number six knows number eight better than anyone else. And he shows him number eight in an interrogation room. She's standing there. And this is why I think it's the next day because she just practically drowned. So it has to be the next day because she had to recover and be yeah, able to be she's here. up and about and all that. Yeah. She's standing there and there's a table in front of her with a big bowl of water on it. And the control room remotely is quizzing her over and over again. Why did she swim? Was she trying to escape? Where is she trying to go? And they just do this over and over again, trying to break her down. So number two explains to number six that this is a test. The floor is electrified, but it turns off every four seconds for four seconds, and she would have time to make it to the door if she can figure out the timing. And as they watch, she does start to figure this out. She takes some water from the bowl, throws it on the floor, sees it explode from the electricity. Then she throws some more, sees that it doesn't explode, counts how long it takes. She figures all this stuff out. And so she runs for the door and she has time to get through the door, but suddenly she stops and she says, kill me. She just wants to Mm -hmm. die. And number two panics and has the control room turn off the floor. And at this point, it's pretty clear number six has decided she's for real because he now gets very angry and he insists that they let her go. And number two says, are you giving me a command? And number six says, look, if you let her go, I'll cooperate. Now I'm not going to tell you anything. But I'll start being a part of the village and not causing trouble. And I'll even join your silly little craft competition. (laughs) And number two is like, I'm supposed to turn her over to you for you doing the craft competition. And number six says, that's the best deal you're going to (laughs) get. Number two agrees to turn her over to number six. Now, they leave it open what that means. I mean, theoretically, it could imply it's number six's job to break her. Or that he's just agreeing to stop screwing with number eight because number six is now gonna gonna cooperate. It's a little open ended to me. I don't know if you have any hmm. feelings about that. Yeah, I think they left it kind of fuzzy as far as what each side was actually giving over, but they both seemed happy with it. So <laughs> good enough. And now we're at the halfway point. Well, with the second half of the show, it's a sunny morning in the village, and number eight shows up at number six's apartment. Number six says, good morning, you're early. And number eight makes him some eggs. So they're being good neighbors, it seems. Yeah, I think this is where it's clear that, okay, he's treating her as a real person, and they kind of have this relationship developing. 
Because, you know, you don't just make eggs for anybody. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Number two is watching this through his cameras, and he decides to pay them a visit. And he arrives just as they're stepping out of the apartment. They're going to the woods. They're going to prepare Number Six's art for the competition. Number two says he's concerned that they might be using weapons, which are not allowed in the village. He's concerned that he could be using axes or saws or chisels or examples that number two gives. And this is somewhat prescient. If you do a Google search for funny British knife confiscation, well, I, I won't go into depth, but <laughs> it's an interesting compare and contrast exercise yeah. if you're inclined. Right, now you, Mr. Apricot. Harrison. Sorry, Mr. Harrison, come on me with that banana. Come on, be as vicious as you like with it. Come on, attack me, come on. Now, 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 put something into it for God's sake. Hold the banana like that. That's better, now scream. Good, right, now attack me. Come on, man, attack me. Next, I eat the banana. Number six, though, he has no intention of using weapons. He says, oh no, abstract art is basically primitive. I've made my own tools. <laughs> and I'm thinking this could be a little jab at abstract art. I'm guessing McGowan might not be a big fan of it. Yeah, thinking back to the general and him poking fun at modern ideas of education and everything, I think, again, for someone who was doing this remarkably futuristic TV show, I don't think he was very interested in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they get out to the woods and they're back among those statues on columns or plinths whatever you'd call it they're the ones that reminded me of roman world some episodes ago and number six tells number eight they can see us but they can't hear us and i'm, I'm curious not sure how he knows how that know yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, it's not entirely clear where he learned that. And for that matter, it's not clear why they would set it up that way because the village has some pretty advanced technology. I mean, they can actually read the thoughts in your brain and get audio <laughs> out of that. So, <laughs> Yeah, so they don't, don't even know. need all this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> number six tries to find out whether number eight knows where the village is. He says, if I knew where I was sailing from, I could calculate where I was sailing to. He chops down a tree with a stone axe that he's made, which of course was on number two's list of prescribed items. <laughs> and then he carves it with, with, with a stone chisel, which is also something that number two specifically mentioned as being <laughs> verboten. That tree went down fast. We see him just starting to chop it, and like two minutes later, it's coming down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With, a big, with a rock. I'm thinking you were going to be here all day long. <laughs> yeah, they they obviously, I doubt very much that he actually chopped down the tree when they were filming it. But they clearly do some jumps because his first several hacks at it just make very small marks. And then the next thing you know, he's got a big old notch in it. So, yeah, a little time lapse there. But he gets the tree down anyway. Number two has been watching in his spherical chair that he inherited from his predecessors. He is a funny way of sitting in it. He's sitting, well, in, in school, we used to call it Indian style. You know, his <laughs> legs are folded. I'm sure that's politically incorrect, by the way. <laughs> I, yeah, that's why, that's why I said that's what we used to call it. But <laughs> 
Not that there's anything particularly offensive that I can see, but you never know these days. <laughs> anyway, finally, number two gets tired of the voyeurism and decides to show up in person. And here, number six has carved what is very obviously a boat-shaped <laughs> frame. Number two doesn't seem to see anything out of the ordinary except to wonder what it's all about. Number six says it won't make sense without the whole group. There will be three pieces. Number two points out the deadline is in two weeks. Number six says I'll be ready. And now number two makes a note of these forbidden <laughs> weapons. He says axe, stone chisels, even these are outside the pale of law, you know, technically speaking. Number six says, I'm sure you can wink a blind surveillance eye. And number two says he wouldn't dream of interfering. <laughs> he offers number six a ride back to town, but number six wants to work more while it's light. Number two says, be seeing you and you. And the, the letter U is the, the frame of the boat. Then <laughs> uh, he, he goes off on his way. And after he leaves, number six says, not for long. <laughs> so back at number six's apartment, night has fallen, the evening curfew's coming in 15 minutes. That's what the public address system tells us. Number eight comes to his door, and number six brings the ever-present speaker outside and sets it on his patio table. So I guess conveniently enough, it's kind of doing some quiet, romantic music, right? So for once, the radio yeah. is, is helping out. <laughs> and oh, also, yeah. I think he's trying to... I mean, I think the real reason he brings it out is, and he kind of hints at this, is that he wants it to cover anyone trying to listen to them. Right, right. He's got the romantic guitar music going on there, and they're, and they're sitting at the table giving the appearance. This is kind of what he did in a previous episode with uh, another lady when they were at a band concert. You know, they're they're talking in one way, you know, they're, they're, what they're seeing doesn't match the expressions that on their faces because right now they're having a conversation which is kind of romantic. You know, I think number six even strokes number eight's yeah. face at some point. They're, they're getting kind of kind of intimate, but what they're what they're talking about is the village, and number two is watching, but apparently he doesn't have sound. Yeah. So I listened to the writer's commentary for this episode. And overall, he was very happy because they used his script almost exactly. Hmm. But there were a few points we'll talk about, and this is one of them where he was unhappy because he didn't know about McGowan's thing about women. And so he had written here that they were kissing mm -hmm. while they were talking. And of course, McGowan wouldn't do that. So you see him stroke her hair. The other thing that's humorous, and once you know, you can't avoid it. I wanted to give you a hint about this ahead of time, but I forgot. Hmm. There's a point where he's walking around holding her, hugging her hmm. as they're talking. Well, he wouldn't do that in a romantic situation. Now, we did see him, and I commented on being surprised. In the A, B, and C episode, there's a woman that he actually dances with. Right. But I think this just confirms my feeling is, as an actor, he was willing to do it if it wasn't romantic. Hmm. But here, where he's clearly trying to act romantic, touching her hair and, you know, then hugging her and everything, he would not, as an actor, do that with a woman that wasn't his wife or, in this mm. case, his daughter. <laughs> so what he did was he had his daughter come on set, put her in the outfit, and that's who he's hugging. Mm. The reason you can tell this is if you're watching for it, 
while he's walking around hugging her, she's half a foot shorter. <laughs> ah. And then the moment you can see her face in the next shot, she suddenly shoots up half a foot. <laughs> yeah, so it's just kind of amusing. And it was another use of the wig. That's one of the reasons they had that big kind of poofy wig is so someone could be in it without being identified. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I guess I admire him sticking to his principles, but I, to my taste, it seems a little excessive. But, uh, you know. <laughs> He's yep. the he's the auteur, so who am I to say? <laughs> Number eight, while they're having their little secret discussion over their under their radio sound, she says that they're in Lithuania, which at this time I looked it up on Wikipedia. This was one of or Lithuania, if this is really Lithuania, was one of the Soviet socialist republics, which were republics with one party running for office. But but this was part of the actual proper Soviet Union, uh, if it is Lithuania, which probably not. <laughs> anyway, number six, hearing that it's Lithuania, he starts listing European locations that are 300 miles away. But number eight says Poland is the best bet. The problem with Poland is that it's an Iron Curtain country. It's not technically part of the Soviet Union, but dominated by it. Number eight asks whether she'll be safe if they can get back to civilization, so to speak. Number six says, I can't answer for the British authorities for either of us, which is a good point. You know, he resigned without giving an explanation, mm -hmm. and she is from the Iron Curtain, you know, the Soviet Union, its sphere of influence. So either of them could be in for a rude awakening if they ever do get back to the whole free mm -hmm. world. Number eight says it's only 30 miles to the Polish border, and that probably explains her initial swimming excursion, because she mm. might have thought she could do 30 miles or maybe get back to the shore to rest or whatever. But she knows a little fishing village where the people resist the village. Just the mention of a fishing village reminded me, there's a little town in Mexico called Yalapa, it was described at one point as a sleepy little fishing village, but somehow it got twisted around and, and the natives refer to it as a fishy little sleeping village. <laughs> I uh, always got a kick out of that. Number eight wants more than anything else to hear the chimes of... <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. The chimes of Big Bill. <laughs> uh, number six corrects her that it's Big Ben she's thinking of, and she says, I'll never call you anything else. And it, I think she, I think she keeps that promise. I think she mm. always refers to him as Big Ben from this point forward. And I believe this is actually a clever writing trick, right? I think as they're becoming closer, he didn't want her calling him number six, but they can't tell her his name. So now mm -hmm. she has a name to call him. So it just makes their relationship more real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's actually calling him something instead of a number. So that's. And it, who knows? His name could be Bill or Ben. That's true. We, we don't know. <laughs> but they say goodnight as the village bells sound the curfew. Suddenly it's the next day on the front steps of the big, lovely building that houses the Exhibition of Arts and Crafts. We don't see the whole building, but we see the entranceway, and it's impressive. It looks like it might be an old church. It's made of yeah. tanned stone. There's a brass band standing in the front steps playing a march. 
They're playing something anyway, probably a march. That's usually what they do here. It could be the same entrance they used in A, B, and C at the end when he was walking through. That might have been like the same church kind of door, but I'm just guessing there. Hmm, I can't picture it off the top of my head, but you, you could be right. Number two strides out of the building to greet number six and number eight. He says the awards committee is intrigued but mystified. <laughs> they go inside, and in the first room, there's just lots of paintings, lots of pencil sketches. There's some busts. And every single one of them is all of number two, the current number two. <laughs> From a production viewpoint, there must have been a good bit of effort they put into all this because there's a lot of different entries on display here. It's rather impressive. Yeah, and different art styles and everything. Also, there's kind of a little Easter egg because in the general... They reuse the bust of number two from this as one of the busts oh. in the room when he's pulling off the sheets. Oh, no kidding. Yep. <laughs> well, then that blows your series order all to hell, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> as I say, there's no way to put them no. in order properly, but, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> so we've got these wonderful displays and they go into, uh, well, <laughs> wonderful if you're fond of number two anyway. <laughs> they head into the main room, which is... It's the dome room, once again. This time it has a gradient lighting on the walls. It's kind of striking. Down the, towards the bottom, it's like a bright flame orange that fades into a purple up top. Uh, nice looking. The general is in there, or possibly the admiral. We're not, <laughs> we're not sure. And this is the, the human general, not the computer. He made his chess set, and... The king, he holds it up. He's very proud of it. And the camera gives us a close-up, and it's it's shaped to look like number two, <laughs> just like all the other artworks. Except for the centerpiece of the whole room. This is number six's abstract installation. Number two introduces number six to the judges as our very own Epstein. And this is a reference to a sculptor uh, from the 20th century. He lived, Jacob Epstein was his name. I looked this up on Wikipedia. He was 1880 to 1959, created a whole variety of sculptures. That he, some were realistic and some were abstract. And actually, I'm not a big on abstract art, but the abstract ones of his that I saw, I actually kind of liked. So that was a rare accomplishment. Kudos to him. <laughs> and I should mention for the internet literate here and our listeners that Epstein didn't kill himself. He had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, good to know. Anyway, one of the judges says, we're not quite sure what it means. Number six says, it means what it is. <laughs> There's a whole lot of meaning to this whole conversation, but I think those two lines are, again, a commentary on the series, right? What mm -hmm. does the prisoner mean? It means what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think I remember hearing that there was some interview, maybe, maybe this was even something you told me, that yeah, he yeah. was in some interview after the fact, and he said, well, if I haven't explained it by now, nothing more I can say is going to yep. Yep. explain. <laughs> number two is on hand watching number six's explanation, and number two calls it brilliant, not just once, but a couple times. But then he notices the presence of the awards committee, or he knew they were there, but he gives a 
arguably fake <laughs> start of surprise and says, uh, Brilliant. It means what it is. Brilliant. Oh, no, you mustn't let me influence you. You are the awards committee. I'm not sure he's being entirely sincere, <laughs> especially considering how things turn out, which we'll find out very shortly. Another judge asks about the title of this installation. They refer to it as a group because it's a group of different pieces all arranged together. The title is Escape. <laughs> Number six points to the obvious looking boat frame. <laughs> says, this piece, what does it represent to you? One of the judges says, a church door. Number six says, right the first time. And indeed, with the pointed prow on it, it does look like a Gothic-style church door with the peak up on mm -hmm. top. And in fact, the building that they're in, the door to that building, it's broader, but it still has its own peak at the top. I don't know if that was intentional or just worked out that way. Number six proceeds with an explanation that seems, it seems partly to be deliberate art fluff and partly to actually express some underlying message. He says one piece, a flat board that's standing upright with holes in it. He says it's freedom or a barrier depending. <laughs> and the, through the holes in this board, you can see the pictures of number two on the walls further <laughs> out. Uh, <laughs> and in a couple scenes, it looks like it's deliberately framed that way to have Number two showing through the holes. Mm -hmm. Number six moves around to the front of the exhibit. He says, free to escape, to escape to this. The symbols to human aspirations, knowledge, freedom, escape. <laughs> what he's pointing to is a cross piece, which is to say it's a cross. It's a, mm -hmm. a tall stick with a shorter stick going across it up towards the top. I think number six, well, McGowan, I mean, is sending a message here, which I usually <laughs> would object to, but I don't think he's super ham-handed. It's, it's not subtle, but it's not beating you over the head either, because as far as we know, he's just spewing random nonsense about abstract art. Yeah. But what I think McGowan is trying to say is that this cross, you know, the cross, is the knowledge, freedom, and escape. And it reminded me of a quote from Malcolm Muggeridge, who it turns out he eventually converted to Roman Catholicism. But Muggeridge had a quote, the orgasm has replaced the cross as the focus of longing and the image of fulfillment. <laughs> sort of a comment on his view of the modern age that to the Catholic Church in particular, the cross isn't, it is in one sense, it's a device of torture and execution, but in it, their symbology, it is also the focus of mm -hmm. longing and the image of fulfillment. It's knowledge, freedom, and escape. So that's, I think, what McGowan was trying to get across there. Yeah, and this is another scene where the writer was annoyed because he had a bunch of dialogue that provided a more comprehensive explanation of these pieces and their connection to religion and, and everything. And mm. I didn't, honestly, I didn't totally understand his explanation either. But he said McGowan felt that he was making an anti-religious statement, and so he changed it. And he, that wasn't his intent, so they had kind of a misunderstanding. But nonetheless, it, you know, at the end of the day, what you have are the clear makings of a boat that he is attempting to turn into this, this meaningful, abstract piece of art. But it's a boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so having explained all the vast artistry that has gone into this, number six is one final question to entertain from the judges. A judge says, the only thing I really don't understand, where is number two? <laughs> now from this scene, it'll immediately cut to the actual number two on a dais, but the judge, I think, is asking, what does this have to do with number two? Because he's the subject of every other piece of art in the yeah. joint. And interestingly, you do get these shots that are framed where you see number two through the holes in the little panel. So that could be another aspect of McGowan's message is that number two is way over there past everything, but the cross is up front in the front of the sculpture and that's, that's the focus of it. So yeah, could be. The other part of it, I would say is it is him both complying with the number two thing and that you can see number two by looking at his piece, but he didn't actually put him in it. So it's both complying and undermining it. You know, he didn't really follow the rule, right. but he kind of followed the rule. <laughs> Not yeah. that rule was never expressed to our knowledge. It's just something that everyone realized. Like if you want to win this competition, you probably better make it about number two. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. You know, I just assumed that either they had been informed somehow or that word had sort of gotten around. But I guess, yeah, if you're in a village that's run by number two, then you're probably going to want a brown nose, especially <laughs> in a village where independent thought is not the most highly prized thing. Remember, it is your council voted for by you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so anyway, number two has mounted the dais to give the awards. The first award, and it seems like he skips a couple of the groups that they were originally promising, but that's just for the interest of time, I guess. The over 60 group, number 38 wins with a big tapestry. <laughs> it's a tapestry of number two, of course. But it pretty looks well pretty good, yeah. Oh, yeah. The big prize, which is 2,000 work units. They refer to work units a lot in this, and I assume they're the same thing as the credit units we've yeah. heard of in other episodes. I think that's just one of those production things. <laughs> yeah. The 2000 work units prize goes to number six. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and number two wants him to give a speech. Number six says, my work is its own <laughs> satisfaction. I am, however, deeply honored by this award. But he goes on to say that he feels the award should go to someone who's been an example to us all which is number 38, we've never seen until a minute ago. Now, number six hastens to add that he won't override the committee's decision, but he wants to use the 2000 work unit award to buy the tapestry for his own home. <laughs> He's a real connoisseur, is number six. Well, the crowd applauds at this. Number six shakes number 38's hand and hands over the dough. And then a whole bunch of them, number six, number eight, number two, and number 38, all emerge together out of the display building into a clapping crowd and a brass band. So I don't know how the crowd <laughs> knew to be clapping. Maybe they saw number two and just immediately assumed they should be clapping. <laughs> but it's a merry occasion nonetheless. So the next shot we see is the same entrance, the same building, but now it's night. Number six and number eight are colluding to haul the abstract art piece out of that building and down to the beach. Now, on the beach, 
the water is brightly lit by the moon, and I, I have a suspicion that this might be one of those day-for-night shots where they put sort of a blue filter so that the reflection we're seeing on the water is probably actually the sun. But it doesn't look bad. It does have a kind of bluish tinge to it. Once you know kind of how the show is put together, I don't even think I mentioned this previously. They spent very little time filming in Port Marion. Hmm. Most of the filming was on sets in London. Really only okay. a few days in Port Marion. So when you see a beach shot like this and, you know, they're running out and putting stuff on the beach and everything, you realize, well, they're not going to have brought the actors there. That would be a hassle. So it's, it's always going to be stand-ins. And once you know that, you realize, yeah, you know, these are not the actors. <laughs> these are two other people doing this. Oh. So they could go out and shoot that whenever without having to spend hours and hours. Because if you're going to bring the actors out there, that's going to be a day-long thing. It's going to take hours to get there and hours to leave, or they're going to stay overnight. Oh, they're going to try sure. to avoid that whenever they can. Although, from what I remember of this shot, it didn't necessarily have to be the beach at Port Marion, although I might be wrong about that. Technically true, but I think it was. We've gotten pretty familiar with what the beach looks like at this point. Yeah. So probably be more trouble than it's worth to find a similar looking beach. Yep. So they've got all the abstract art down to the, down to the beach. First, they lay out a tarp. Then they put the floor of the boat on top of the tarp, then the frame. Then they raise up the edges of the tarp and wrap it around the boat and tie it all up. And the tarp serves to close up all the holes in the actual floor that were there for the sake of letting people admire the pictures of number two through them. <laughs> yeah, I guess they are assuming or relying on the idea that the tarp is totally waterproof. I'm not sure that would be a good plan, but I guess that's what yeah. you're stuck with. <laughs> well, they're the secret agents. They know what they're doing. <laughs> and finally, they mount the cross piece and unfurl the sail. And uh, the sail is, of course, the tapestry of number two. Yeah, the one he got from number 38. I, I love that shot because it's just, it's kind of a surprise and it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cute. Looks like it won't be hanging in number six's apartment though, which is a pity. <laughs> and with that, they set sail. We get a shot of the village on a pretty sunny morning and the PA says, good morning, good morning. It goes on to say that it'll be hot and fine all day, though the fresh breeze will continue. And that's good because that's what the boat needs for its sail. And we see the boat out on the sea near some coastal hills. Seems to be going well. Number six says there are about two miles left to go, if number eight's geography is correct. We see inside the war room where the supervisor, we've seen him before. He's uh, the bald guy with glasses. He calls number two. There's a radar screen in there that shows the boat is almost out of radar range. It's about 30 miles out. In this radar, it has an orange screen, and it, I think it's a real radar screen. I, I was on the bridge of a ferry boat many years ago, and they had a smaller radar with the same kind of orange screen, and I, I think this might be just the real deal. Okay. Number two says the supervisor had better contact post five just in case. With them going out of the radar range, they want to have other options, apparently. And once he's done that, the supervisor is to issue an orange alert. <laughs> it seems to be the only color alert they have around here. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, if I remember right, I think in the first episode they had some kind of escalation, but I don't remember exactly which one. Yeah, but ever since it's just orange, and orange means bring on (laughs) Rover. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And sure enough, our next shot is underwater. We see an air bubble at first, and then we see Rover surface. And it's an interesting shot. You Mm. see Rover moving at a pretty good clip along the surface of the water, and I didn't see anything, any obvious strings or poles or anything. Um, And it actually bounces above the water. My best guess is it was either real windy or they had a big fan when they were when they were shooting it. Yeah, I'm gonna guess. uh, Now I have not seen anything about this in any of my research, so I don't know. I'm going to guess that they had a boat out of sight. It would have been a ways away, and it would have been a really long fishing string, but they just had a boat out of sight that was pulling it along. Mm, Could be any of these things. Yeah. I think big fan, I don't know how they get the big fan out on the water because they do seem to be pretty far out on the water. But regardless, in general, the control of Rover works really well. You don't really know, even when you know how it's done, you can't really see what's going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an impressive effect, I think. And on this little makeshift boat, number eight says, that's it. See the cave? Yeah, they're getting close to their destination. On the shore, a man with binoculars is watching. Through his binoculars, he sees Rover appear, and he lifts a sniper rifle. Then number eight on the boat, she spots Rover, and it's making a real scary howling sound as it's a- approaching them. Not something you want to hear when you're out on a nice boat ride. Mm-hmm. And number six is swim for it. So I, I guess they he figures they can swim faster than the boat's moving. So while they're swimming for the shore, the sniper, he puts three holes in Rover. Uh, he has a really remarkably tight grouping. They're all just <laughs> within inches of each other. They don't do any evident damage aside from making little tiny holes. But number six and number eight reached the shore. This was another of the writer's gripes. He thought this was pretty lame. He thought that Rover should have exploded or something when it was shot and that hmm. he just shoots it and then it kind of wanders away. It was anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually have a note about that because in another scene or two, we see him wander off. But first, when they reach the shore, the sniper and number eight, they talk in Polish and number six asks for a pen and paper. And that's when they cut to the scene of Rover seemingly losing interest. And there are various possibilities for it. Two of the obvious ones are that it's too injured to go on further. Possibly it has respect for the fact that it's Polish territory now. Although if they have some kind of deal with Lithuania, you'd expect they have a deal with Poland as well. But who knows? But there may be another reason that we could guess about later. If I had to make a guess here, it would be that it went out of range of them being able to control it, Mm, that it's sort of remote controlled. So that's true because they had the 30 mile limit on the radar. So yeah, sure. That could be same deal. Yeah. Good guess. But there also may be another reason that we (laughs) possibly (laughs) think of later. (laughs) Number six has written a message in code, and he asks for it to be sent to London immediately. That's going to be the instructions for where a crate should be delivered. The sniper says their route will be Gdansk to Danzig, then Copenhagen, then London. 
Number six's watch has been damaged by seawater on the trip, so he trades it for the sniper's watch. It's kind of polite to say he trades it. And I, I thought this was a little rude because I can't imagine ever doing this. He just says to the guy, give me your watch. <laughs> like, yeah, mine, yeah, mine's yeah. Wanted, like, give me yours. Like maybe this was something his grandfather <laughs> gave him. Maybe, I mean, you don't just take somebody's watch. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you're, if you're a secret agent, the, the mission comes first, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a big crate here and number six and number eight get into it. It's partitioned into two compartments, so they're they're lying side by side in it, but they're uh, it's kind of like an Amish bundling board type of thing. <laughs> but there is a practical potential effect of this, which is by having the width of the crate for each of the passengers, if the crate runs into turbulence on the trip, which is quite possible because it's going to be on a truck, on a boat, and on an airplane, this means that being half as wide for each person, that that's half the distance they can be thrown around if, if they run into turbulence. So there's yeah. a practical value. Knowing what we do about McGowan, it's easy to guess that he didn't want to be in physical contact with the actress in this box, which is in fact the reality. So yeah. the writer had a gripe about this because he didn't write it this way and he felt it hurt the scene. I actually disagree with him. I actually think it makes the scene a little more visually interesting. And they're having mm -hmm. to talk to each other through the box. And I, I think it actually works. Yeah. I can't complain about it. And like I said, that practical consideration of getting mm -hmm. thrown around in turbulence, that to me, that makes sense. <laughs> and they do sense. end up getting knocked around at some point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so first the crate's loaded onto a truck. Number eight speaks through the wooden partition. She says, Big Ben. I just wanted to hear your voice. Number six replies, <laughs> I don't chime. <laughs> he says, uh, he says the chimes are still about 12 hours away at this point. Seems like he's already getting tired of having a girlfriend here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The crate gets loaded onto a ship and number eight says she's starting to get a little seasick. Number six gives her good advice. Good advice for almost any situation. It's hold out. <laughs> He says there's only another three hours at sea. So. Yeah, and I'm thinking if you're like ready to throw up, someone's saying, look, you just have to wait another three hours. It's not the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not giving great assistance here, I don't think. Then number eight asks if he has a wife in England. And he says no. And he also says, don't talk anymore. <laughs> yeah, again, getting tired of the girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. And of course, as soon as he said this, Number eight gets an impudent little grin on her face and she speaks again. She says, Big Ben, I feel a bit better. <laughs> Presumably she feels a bit better knowing that he doesn't have a wife in England. <laughs> Could be. Then we cut to an office in London. It's a very nice, swanky office. Great big map behind the desk on the wall. There's bookshelves. Just a nice, classy looking office. And the phone rings in there. It's answered by a man named Fotheringay. He's a slim, well-dressed man. And when he answers the phone, he's talking to somebody on the other end about the upcoming delivery. And he says, I can't wait to see him. Then we see the crate's been loaded on an airplane or being loaded on an airplane. And then it's been loaded. There's under one and a half hours to go at this point. Number six expects to end up in an office in London that he knows very well. 
Now, number eight, having established that he doesn't have a wife, she asks if he's engaged. She's not the most subtle person. <laughs> no, no, she uh, gets right to the point. Number six says, go to sleep. <laughs> the plane finally lands. The handlers, they knock the crate around a bit, but then one of them points out that it's marked fragile, <laughs> so presumably they shape up after that. Our next scene is in the anteroom of the luxurious office we saw earlier. A bunch of guys walk in. One of them is a colonel wearing a camel hair coat. And Father Ingay is there waiting for them. And they open the crate. Number six is in there. He, he seems a, a little bit dazed at first, having a hard time believing that he, he actually made it. Because he knows these guys, yeah. Yeah, he shakes hands with the colonel and Father Ingay. And the colonel dismisses Father Ingay, at least for the for the moment, so they can have a private talk. And the, there's the sound of ringing chimes, and number eight asks, Number six says, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and number eight is dismissed as well. They go into the office, the colonel, number six, and they're going to have a private talk in there. Number six mentions the village, and he asks the colonel, don't you know about it? And the colonel doesn't seem to, but the colonel answers, I am here to ask the questions, old boy. Number six gives a concise explanation of what the village is. It's a place where people with valuable information in their heads are sent to to get the information out. Uh, and he asks the colonel, are you sure you haven't got a village here? <laughs> I think this is interesting because, as we said, he's relieved to see these people he knows, and yet he is still really suspicious. Like, he mm -hmm. doesn't, he clearly does not believe they have no idea what this is about. Right, right. And they talk more about how number six escaped from the village and what the village is. And finally, he's getting more and more aggravated that the colonel isn't really giving him a polite welcome and so forth. Yeah, he's clearly not sympathetic about everything he's gone through. You know, he just wants information out of him. Right, right. And number six says, this is a line that right towards the end, his tone changes pretty abruptly. It's pretty neat little mini speech he says i risked my life and hers to come back here home because i thought it was different and that's when he starts yelling he says it is isn't it it's different <laughs> he's hoping that it's different and that it's not really just he's hoping that this british government that he'd done all that work for is at least to some extent what he believed he was working for <laughs> And the colonel apologizes. He says, no, you've been through a lot and so forth. He offers a scotch. And number six says, 24 work units. <laughs> <laughs> but at least this is alcohol-based mm -hmm. scotch. So that's something. The colonel points out that from his point of view, by way of explaining why he's being so brusque and callous, he points out that number six resigned a post of the highest secrecy. He vanished for months. Then he returned from the other side of the Iron Curtain. Mm -hmm. The colonel then accuses number six of switching sides, but number six denies it. The colonel responds, no, he says, niet, niet, <laughs> which is Russian for no. 
says, what sort of imbeciles do you think we are? Now, if you've, if you've listened to the Fire Sign Theater, you know that the proper answer to a question like that is first class. <laughs> but that's not what number six answers. Big Ben chimes again, and it continues chiming as the colonel asks, first, why did you resign? I think it was, I was already apprehensive about this whole scene because the well, one, one thing that was a bit suspicious is that there are blinds in this office, mm-hmm. but they're drawn completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, you might just want to be keeping it private. It could just mm-hmm. be privacy. Sure. But it's still, it just <laughs> was one little thing that threw me off. But then when he says, first, why did you resign? That was when I thought, you know, that's the same damn thing they ask him in the village. But it seems to me that at this moment, number six is still believing the situation because he starts to explain. Right, right. He does. He does seem to, although he isn't too quick about it. He Quite a lot of things. But let's start at square one first, shall we? First, why did you resign? It was a matter of conscience. Oh, listen, sonny boy. Do you think you're safe in London? If they thought it worth kidnapping you, it's worth killing you. I doubt if you'll be alive 24 hours after you leave this building, unless you get protection. Do you want it? For the girl as well. If you come across with the goodies, yes. Political asylum guaranteed for the girl. Well, that depends. It depends nothing. It's guaranteed. All right. So long as you keep your part of the bargain. All right. Right. Question one. Why did you resign? I resigned. Because for a very long time, just a minute. Just a minute. It's eight o'clock. <laughs> Big Ben has just struck eight. My watch says eight. The colonel says, so? Number six replies, I was given this watch by a man in Poland. Would you care to explain to me how a man in Poland is a watch showing <laughs> English time when there's one hour's difference? Number six starts looking around the room, And in a closet, he finds a reel-to-reel tape player, and the sounds of the traffic outside stop when the tape player stops. So the traffic and Big Ben, all all the lovely sounds of London, that was all coming from this tape player. Number six walks out of the office, walks down the hallway to the entrance. He opens the door, and surprise, surprise, (laughs) He's about 30 yards from the entrance to the village's exhibition building. <laughs> so he walks toward the building. The marching band goes by playing cheerful music. Number two emerges from the building with fathering gay. Number two says, better get back to London before any embarrassing questions are asked. The colonel will give you your orders when he returns. And then number eight comes out to join them. So they're standing there in a group just as number six gets to the foot of the steps. And he, he pauses, he gives a quick casual salute to the group, probably particularly to number eight, because he may very well have been starting to feel some genuine affection for her. It isn't completely clear, but, but it Mm. seems like it's a good possibility. 
Although we also saw that he might have been a little annoyed during the crate ride. So <laughs> you know, the, the romance status is ambiguous. But he gives this casual, quick salute, and he says, be seeing you. And he moves on his way. As he heads back to his apartment, the public address system announces a new upcoming competition, <laughs> Seascapes. <laughs> Which number six has some recent experience in, so he might be a he might be a dead ringer for that one. Number six gets back to his apartment. And he snaps his fingers, and the door opens automatically. And I don't think this is something we've seen in the show up to this point. Well, the door, yeah, the door is open actually all the time, but this is the I think the first time we see him sort of trigger it. Yeah, the, the snapping fingers, and this this prompted me to do some interesting research. There's a device called the clapper that mm-hmm. you can clap your hands and it'll, you know, activate your lights or various electrical devices in the house. Honey, turn off the light. Has this ever happened to you? Presenting the clapper. Let's your appliances turn on and off just by clapping. Clap on the music. It's easy. Just plug the clapper into any household outlet. Then plug in your lamp, TV, or stereo. Clap on The Clapper was introduced in 1985, but according to Time Magazine, I did did my internet homework on this, (laughs) there was a device called the Sonya Switch that was invented in 1965, so before this show came out. It never made it to market, apparently, but maybe it made it to the village. (laughs) (laughs) So the last scene takes place in the war room. Number two adds a line to his log, back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Number eight is there with him, and she says, you were right about him. Number two says, told you. Number eight says, don't worry. It was a good idea, and you did your best. I'll stress it in my report. And then the the floating head zooms in, which I, I, I always find this hilarious. I don't know why. But, you know, with the end of the show, the floating head zooms up and the bars peer over it. And that's the, that's the end of the show. Well, we haven't described that before. So let me mention, yeah, at the very end, the last couple seconds you see is Patrick McGowan's head coming up. And part of what's weird about it to me is it looks pretty cheesy. It totally mm-hmm. is outside of the production values of the rest of the show. So, <laughs> yeah. Just this big head comes up and then these bars come over it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like it's like just zooming in out of a long tunnel or something. It's it's hard to describe, but for some reason that just always makes me chuckle. <laughs> Another thing I'll mention, mostly as a note for myself again, it's a reminder. One of the clips I wanted to find for our last episode when I was mentioning the ulcer commercial, and you didn't recall it, but I wonder if you remember uh, the lyric was "Pop, pop, fizz, fizz." Oh, what a relief it is! Oh, Alcazar, <laughs> sure, I remember yeah. that. Pop, pop, fizz, fizz. Yeah. Oh, what a relief it is! So that's yeah. a clip I'm yeah, going to put I in for that, that. one. <laughs> <laughs> there was another good one too, where uh, the guy would eat a great big meal, and then then you'd hear this indigestion. <laughs> When you get nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, even diarrhea. Hey, there's Pepto-Bismol. Nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Yay, Pepto-Bismol! Nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Yay, Pepto-Bismol! Nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Yay, Pepto-Bismol! Now 
you know, Pepto treats five different stomach problems. You see, pink does more than you think. Okay, so let's discuss this episode. First of all, the actors, I mean, we talked about Leo McKern a bit. I think he's just great. Mm-hmm. I think the, the only other number two so far comes anywhere close is a guy named Colin. I think it's Colin Gordon. He was the one for both the general and ABC, but he mm. was really good. Okay. Yeah. I think Leo McKern is just incredible. Amazingly, he suffered from stage fright and the stage fright only got worse as he got older, which is weird because he was in hundreds of plays and all these mm. TV shows and movies. And also as he gained wakes, he was kind of a stout guy. He felt like people didn't want to see that and, you know, just got mm. very insecure, which just it's just one of those cases where watching this guy i would never imagine that he was insecure as an actor because he is just so good and so on oh, top yeah. of it yeah. yeah i did enjoy this number two quite a bit i thought he he brought a good blend of elements to the role it was pretty neat <laughs> yeah and as mentioned earlier you know 10 years later is when he started doing the role that really defined him and that was ron pull of the bailey And it's kind of interesting because my experience just observing people is usually becoming well-known and, you know, famous and maybe wealthy when you're older is usually better, right? Because you've kind of established your life and you don't kind of go around and screw Mm. it all up, which young people who get a bunch of money and fame tend to, (laughs) tend to go and screw it all up pretty quickly. But in his case, he really was unhappy about it because his feeling was that his best work was his earlier work and that all anyone was going to know about him was his rumpole of the Bailey role. And so that really annoyed Mm. him. So it's kind of just a little unusual. Most people who get good success late in their life handle it better. I mean, Ian McKellen's Mm. a good example, right? He not Mm -hmm. as late, but he got well-known relatively late into his career and he has had a great career and I think he's really enjoyed it. And, you know, you don't get any sense that he's, that he's annoyed that because he was in X-Men or something that people don't know about some Shakespeare work that he did earlier, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. what do you think about Nadia, our number eight? Oh, I liked her. I thought, uh, I thought she was a pretty good character. She did a good job of selling the whole charade, I think. Uh, yeah. uh, it was very, very plausible. Kept you wondering. <laughs> well, yes, did you believe, or if you did, you know, how long did you believe that she might be for real? I think overall, I, I was inclined to believe I think there was always a seed of doubt because I knew that we still had a lot of the series yet to go. So so I, uh, I didn't, I didn't figure the rest of that series was going to be the prisoner in London. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know exactly how she would end up not being the solution to his problems. I didn't know if she'd end up getting killed or could be a number of possibilities. Right. I don't know one for sure. I'd say I wasn't certain until he did his trick with the watch, you mm. know, right, right when he found out. Mm. Till then, I, I'd say the options were open for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say story-wise, I mean, it is a weakness of the series that over and over again he gets betrayed. And again, one of the reason I choose the order of the episodes I do, and I mentioned it when we watched the general, is that in the general, people are actually authentically trying to help him. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to put that up front because if you just have betrayal after betrayal, it just, you know, it makes, oh yeah, of course this person's screwing him over, right? Right. 
they do take advantage of this in a story that's coming up in a clever way. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. All right. I should perhaps mention that when you get to the ending and you find out that it was all an elaborate ruse, that goes a long way towards explaining why number two didn't immediately recognize the boat frame. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> because yeah, he, he knew wanted all him to along, build a yeah. boat. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the question you really have to have is, did they do the craft show knowing he'd do this? That to me seems a little unbelievable. Like it's a little hard to plan that much in advance, mm. but I think it's clear that as soon as number two saw what he was making, he knew exactly what it was and he was just having fun with him. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's one of the nice things about this, say, versus the guy who was number two in the general in A, B, and C, where that guy was just stressed and freaking out and, you know, mm -hmm. Where Leo McKern, he's having fun. He's oh, enjoying yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I have to wonder, I mean, uh, at some point, unless it happens off camera, but it would be interesting to see if he inevitably gets replaced by some other number two, which I am pretty sure he will at some <laughs> point. It'd be interesting to see how that happens and how he takes it and so forth. But, uh, I'll we shall see. Watching. That's an interesting question, <laughs> and I'm not going to say anything. All right. Now, a criticism I have of the story is it does cheat a couple of times. So hmm. they have scenes that wouldn't exist if everyone. For the, so, for example, early on, when number eight goes for the swim, and then number two goes back to his office, and then he looks in his file and realizes that she was an Olympic swimmer, and then he calls the control. Well, if this is all a setup, he knew all of this and he's alone. Right. So there's no reason for him to fake it. Yeah. Now you could, you know, I think that the way you could make that work is to say that, yes, she was a plant, but they didn't know exactly what she was going to do. Right. Could and be, so they yeah. hadn't actually worked that out. And her job was just to make it seem realistic. So going out and practically drowning herself and surprising them could be an effective technique. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to make that work. But another one yeah. was that I think is less excusable is toward the end, the first time we're in the London office and you described it, the guy gets a call. He's like, okay, I'm waiting to see him. Well, wait, that none of that. Mm. He's already on the, in the village. None of that needed to happen. That was all there just to make us feel like this was really in London. Yeah. Yeah. With the fathering game is, is phone call. I, one possibility for that, and it's it's a stretch perhaps, but it could be a uh, could be a form of method acting, like getting them into their <laughs> roles, you know, helping them remember what what it's like to work in the office in London, you know, and just get warmed <laughs> up. I mean, that's that's a possibility. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a stretch. <laughs> I think it's just a cheat so that we are thrown off a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Talking about ordering. So this episode was filmed fifth. And I think that makes sense when some of the things we talked about where, where Leo McKern asks him if he remembers his first day in the village and that sort of thing. But it was put as number two on DVDs and Blu-rays. And there are a couple little things that fit with that. As I mentioned in the very beginning, the minion for number two was a guy who was also in the first episode, the one who gave him the test. Well, he had the Tinker mm. Toys and all that. But overall, it just makes no sense to me that this would be the second episode. 
And the fact that they filmed it fifth and I place it as number four, I think means that, you know, I think that's somewhere in there is where it belongs, right? Hmm. Also, the first episode, he does an attempted escape, abetted by a woman. In this one, he does an attempted escape, abetted by a woman. Again, I just think it's too repetitive for the Mm. first two episodes. Right. There are reasons that I like having Leo McKern early, but we'll talk about that as the series progresses. Okay. So next up in our perfect ordering of the prisoner is free for all. So we'll be seeing you. Uh, do you need to take a break or anything? No, I don't think so. I was glad uh, it, it just coincidental that we didn't get around to this rover topic until now because it actually has a lot of connection to this episode. <laughs> it's a, uh, for what the writer said and the extra work that rover had in here. Yeah, I don't know if you. I wrote in a couple of questions. I don't know if you wanted to be prepared at a time if you hadn't already seen them. This is going to ask. Oh, uh, I did. I said, how would you describe it? Yeah, I actually yeah. have some thoughts about that. Okay. So, uh, I think I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about Rover. <laughs> mm. Rover went through a real evolutionary process. Now, you mentioned without prompting in the first episode that you really had a positive reaction to Rover. Yeah. How are you feeling, you know, four episodes in? I still, uh, I still like it. I think, uh, it's as well done in this episode as it was, uh, in the, in the debut. Uh, the two little balls accepted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although that was, I mean, that was, that was cute. I mean, <laughs> aside from my own mind being in the gutter, you know, that's, uh, uh, it, it worked. It was, it, it kind of mm-hmm. made sense, you know, because Rover doesn't have arms or legs about the only thing it can do is just sort of wrap around people and smother them. Um, <laughs> so in this case, the, the balls, the smaller balloons actually play a, uh, a useful purpose because they <laughs> give, give Rover something approaching, uh, limbs. <laughs> so the writer for this episode was asked to give Rover a big part. And of course, no one knew at this point what Rover would be. In fact, as we mentioned, for the first month of, of filming the show, they didn't know what Rover would be. And all they knew was McGowan had said, look, this thing can go over water. It can go up walls. It can fly. It can do anything. So when he was asked to make Rover a big part of the story, the writer came up with the idea for number eight to try to swim out because he thought it would be interesting for Rover to follow her over the water and capture her. He was thinking maybe it'd be some kind of submarine thingy or, you know, he didn't know what it would be. And I think it's very bizarre in a series like this that McGowan just gave this description to the special effects people saying, look, it can do anything, right? It can go on water and go underwater. (laughs) It can fly. You figure it out. And then they don't even see, you know, these days, right? We have all these previses and all the months and months of work is put into all the pre-production and all the special effects. He just told them to do whatever and literally was filming for a month before he even saw it. That It's just inconceivable <laughs> these days. Oh, yeah. 
And so a month in, the original rover shows up, and I have some clips to play. But before I play clips of people who are there at the time, I've given you some pictures here, Guy, of the original rover. How would you yeah. describe this? <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it, it, it's it's big. It's about uh, well, it's it's not as tall as a man, not quite as tall, but it's it mainly looks something like a cross between a flying saucer and uh there's if you look up mongolian hat and google <laughs> images uh there there are some hats that uh that look somewhat like it it's uh it's 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 got a big lip around the bottom and then a a dome and the dome has an umbrella pattern you know with the four <laughs> white stripes and then there are four black stripes and then it's topped off with a big blue police light on top of everything else. So it's, I uh, would describe it as a crumpet or a British pastry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, I wouldn't want to be chased by it, but, uh, it's, <laughs> it does have a little more of a conventional design than, uh, Rover. You know, this, this yeah. is more sci-fi and rover as we know him is more sort of almost lovecraftian you know it's just weird and uh unworldly so it's yeah i mean this is this is a cute thing i could see this working well like a star wars droid or something like yeah, that yeah you know, that's but, a good uh, point yeah well let's let's hear what the reaction was at the time when it showed up <laughs> and they all came up with an idea that we didn't get a chance to see in the studio. It was delivered on location in front of hundreds of local people, the entire film crew, and it was demoralizing. While on paper the device appeared frightening enough, in reality a go-kart with a flashing light on top was never going to inspire terror. <laughs> mm -hmm. The idea here, actually very similar to the Daleks, right? Um, Mm. The Daleks were this enclosure that people inside were on a little bicycle thing and they could drive around. It worked remarkably well. And they I never heard anyone say this, but I have to imagine this was inspired by the Daleks. So, you know, the timing is pretty close. And mm. so the idea was, okay, they put this casing that you described on top of a guy who's literally on a go-kart on his back. And one of the pictures shows that. And then he's supposed to drive it around the same way you drive around a Dalek. But unlike a Dalek where the person is sitting up and can see and has all his control, here you're laying on your back, you can't see, <laughs> you can't turn <laughs> corners, <laughs> and part of the whole deal here was supposed to be able to go in the water. <laughs> it's just a yeah. go-kart with a fabric thing over the top of it, it can't go in the water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, so I have a description of the guy who tried to drive it around. So... In my enthusiasm to see if it would work, I said, I can, I'll climb inside this stupid cake and, and try and drive this go-kart. And then when I got inside, I couldn't see anywhere. I couldn't see where I was going. So I s tried to start this go-kart up and go forward a few feet and skids and make it turn around. I was nearly dying in there with, with fumes. I got out and just said, this is ridiculous. This is totally ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so it's been a month. Uh, this thing shows up. There's no way it's going to work. And between the different interviews and things that I've listened to and read, multiple people have accounts of how the idea for the actual rover came up of basically using a weather balloon. 
it's one of those things where, you know, 40, 50 years after the fact, people are going to remember different things without even, they don't have to be trying to, to lie about anything. Everyone's just going to have their own memory. Right. But w- however it came about, the result was amazing, right? Because a, mm. a weather balloon actually could go anywhere. It actually could fly. It actually could go up a wall. <laughs> it actually could go across the water. And that's amazing, right? <laughs> There's oh, not yeah. many things that you can imagine that could do that. <laughs> and on top of all that, and I think this is the most important thing, the blank sterility of a weather balloon really fits into this sensibility of the prisoner and really represents this idea of, you know, the security mechanism for the establishment is going to be this very unhuman, very impossible to identify with thing, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I think they I think they nailed it. It's uh, at least in these two episodes. And that's that's another thing I wanted to mention is that what is this the fourth episode mm-hmm. we've watched now? Yep. Um, and I think I think Rover his is it only two of those episodes that it's actually appearing in? I think it's in all, but I can't uh, I can't promise that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I'd be surprised if it didn't show up in the other. I, I can't recall which ones it's shown up in, but I haven't yet gotten the feeling that it's overused or that right. it's a crutch they rely on just to throw some action in or, you know, the various potential problems that you might run into having a thing like this uh, in your writing arsenal. You know, they seem to be using it judiciously so far. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, one of the easy mistakes would be to have this show up all the time. And in this episode, is there more than usual? They intentionally wanted to make use of it. But in general, throughout the series, as we'll see, it just shows up here and there as a kind of, you know, scary reminder of, hey, we're in control. We're watching you. You can't get away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and also amazing was how easy it was to create as an effect, because what they realized was they could use fishing wire you know, just tape some fishing wire to it and pull it on that. You couldn't see the fishing wire. It's invisible. And that worked perfectly. And then mm. they had some clever stuff. So in the first episode, like McGowan is walking along and the balloon is right behind him. So it's really kind of dominating him. <laughs> mm, and the way yeah. they did that was they just took some fishing wire and taped it to his jacket. So as he's walking along, he's pulling the balloon <laughs> along with him. <laughs> <laughs> so very clever. Uh. Yeah, not only a good effect, but uh, cost-effective also. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, of course, now it would be a gazillion dollars CGI, you know, et cetera. They, and they, uh, one of the things we haven't mentioned, I mean, they did a few years ago a reconception of the series. I think it was three or four episodes long with Ian McKellen and Jim Caviezel. Hmm. I've never been tempted to watch it. I, I don't know if, you know, maybe it's part of this series or sometime we want to watch it, but I, I just feel like why would you remake something like the prisoner i don't you know i don't have a problem with remakes when they have something new to say or you're remaking something that wasn't particularly good and maybe mm-hmm. bring or there are some cases like oh what was i thinking of oh the what's the song about the singer um that they keep bringing out of the, um every decade or two they just had a, a star is born yeah so there are movies like a star is born where I feel like, okay, every generation we're basically saying we're going to retell this with people who are well-known now in their current situation. And, and I think mm-hmm. that makes sense, right? It, it's, it's a perpetual story and we're going to retell it. 
something with the prisoner for me. I mean, I could see retelling it, but like, this is a great series. I just don't, I, I just have no interest in watching a remake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of the remakes that I hear about don't sound very appealing to me because, uh, it, especially if they're based on something that I knew was good to start with. Like I, I believe sometime back there was a remake of a cycle, the Alfred Ooh, Hitchcock yeah, movie. Yeah. And, and it was a shot a for shot that, remake, right? Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Which makes well, it even I, more pointless. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I never saw the remake, so who knows? I, I might very well enjoy it if I saw it, but I it just seemed to be like, why? Right. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing wrong with the original. It was fine. Yeah. <laughs> One of the movies on our list to watch eventually is the Magnificent Seven. And they remade the Magnificent Seven a few years ago. And again, it's like, you know, uh, now mm. there are also many other takes on the Magnificent Seven and, and the film that came from Seven Samurai. And that's one of the things that we want to explore, but to actually remake the exact same movie. Why? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> so big question for you guys. If they had gone with the original Rover, would we be watching this show today? Hmm. I would. My first inclination is I think there's a good chance of it. I mean, they, it, they would have probably had to do some hard work and some various jiggering to get the, to get that original design to work, you know, in the various situations they wrote for it, like using it on the ocean, you know, they'd have to put it on a sheet of plywood or God knows what, you know, but they potentially they could have solved all the technical issues involved, you know, the driver not being able to see and so forth. <laughs> uh, assuming they had solved all the technical issues with it and made it reasonably plausible so far, it's, it's a small enough component of the whole show that I don't think the show lives or dies by what Rover is. I, th hmm. I think there's enough outside of it with Patrick McGowan and his stories and all the neat actors they bring in for every episode. And, uh, so, so far from what I've seen, it doesn't seem like Rover is the make or break feature of the show. He's just a very good complimentary part of the show. So I think mm -hmm. we might, I, we might well be watching it even if we had a somewhat lamer rover <laughs> <laughs> that is possible i'll say it wouldn't be quite the same though it wouldn't be as good um yeah but it yeah, definitely sure. is is an important part of the show but then it works and you think are they gonna buy this uh, is the audience and the studio gonna buy a white balloon you know you see you 